Charles Haddon Spurgeon, <clears throat> who was known as the Prince of Preachers, once said this. He said, in God's word, we are over and over again commanded to pray. God's institutions are not folly. They're not worthless. Can I believe that the infinitely wise God has ordained for me an exercise that is ineffective and no more than child's play? Does he tell me to pray and yet prayer have no more of a result than if I whistle to the wind or sing to a grove of trees? If there is no answer to prayer, prayer is a monstrous absurdity and God is the author of it, which is a blasphemy. If there is no answer to prayer, prayer is a monstrous absurdity and God is the author of it, which is, which is blasphemy. That's what C.H. Spurgeon said, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And so really what he's asking is, is prayer a waste of time? Is prayer just whistling to the wind or singing to a grove of trees or is it more? Well, Spurgeon answered his question. He would say no. Someone once explained to me that North Gore is, uh, is that where most of us live, our town of North Gore, is the meeting place of different electrical grids. And so often when much of North Gore is out of power, the manse and the church is still on. And vice versa, which is why when the power is out at home, uh, one of the first things which we will do is call someone in another part of town to ask if their power is on, or we would go onto Facebook to find out where the power is and where the power isn't. And this actually gives us a glimpse into a spiritual truth that uh, some of us can experience a power brownout or even a power blackout in our spiritual lives, while others seem to have the power on. And the single most important factor in finding out if you are either empowered or without power is whether you, you are connected to the power grid of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the only way for you to be connected to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is through prayer. There is no other way. So if you're without power at the moment, might it be because you're without prayer? Without prayer, without power. If you're feeling spiritually uncharged, maybe depleted or running low, you, you need to pray. Because prayer is a vital connection. Without prayer, without power. In fact, let's say that all together. Ready? One, two, three. Without prayer, without power. One more time. Without prayer, without power. Because like the theme of this sermon series says, prayer is keeping company with God, which is a wonderful thought, right? Keeping company with our Father, with our Jesus, and with our Holy Spirit. And so since mid-April, we've looked at how prayer is an exchange, an exchange of our weariness and our burdens for Jesus' yoke and our fellowship with the Trinity. We've looked at how prayer is remaining uh, we've, we've, we looked at how prayer is choosing not to leave the presence of God. Or in the words of John 15, 5-6, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide, if you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If, if you do not remain in me, then you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such a branch is thrown, uh, is, is picked up, thrown into the fire and burnt. 
And if you're part of the way renewal pathway, then you'll know that that is one of our memory verses. John 15, 5, 5 to 6. And then we spent a couple of weeks looking at how prayer is both seeking God and waiting on him. Which seems rather contradictory, but Psalm 27 verse 8 says, My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. While verse 14 of the same psalm tells us to wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And so we need to persevere in seeking him. And we need to be patient in waiting for him. Both waiting and seeking. And then we spent a, uh, and then we spent a couple of weeks um, learning how to pour out our hearts in prayer. First, we asked the question, just how honest am I able to be in my prayer? And then we learned that God has zero interest in us being nice or polite. He wants us to trust him with our true selves and with our full honesty and with our full hearts. And then, and then Steve Elliott led us in learning to lament trusting God with our grief. And so we've now brought this series to a close by looking at prayer as action. Last week's theme was prayer invites God's action, right? Prayer is, it's, it's really all about him. It's not about us. Prayer invites God's action, and we looked at how God answered Elijah's prayer by changing people's hearts in here, and then we looked at how God answered Daniel's prayer at changing global situations out there. So prayer invites God's action. And this week, our final thought on prayer is that prayer is our action. It's about us. It's about what we do. And so if we want God to move in our lives and in our communities and in our homes, then we need to take seriously our responsibility to pray. Because if we don't pray, then things won't happen. Now, you might be wondering why I'm carrying a pole Well, like most poles, this pole has two ends. One end is yellow and one end is green. And then there's this kind of like gray duct tape in the middle. And at each end of the pole, things are very clear. On one end, it's clear that, uh, that, that prayer invites God's action, right? That God is the mover and the shaker. But then at the other end of the pole, it's also clear that prayer is our action, that God moves in response to our prayers, that we are the movers and the shakers. Now, of course, both of these are true. Prayer is God's action, or prayer invites God's action, and prayer is our action. These are both true, and these can both be, bu- both be backed up by Scripture after Scripture. But in the middle of the poll, things get mysterious. Things get murky. Things get uncertain. Because this is where we start to meditate on this place where, where, um, where God's sovereignty and human agency meet. Where God's uh, will and God's providence meet the prayers of the average Christian. Folks like you and me, and that's what we're looking at this morning. This mysterious bit in the middle. And so with that in mind, let's turn to Numbers chapter 14, starting at verse number 10. Numbers 14, starting at verse number 10. Says this. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have performed among them? Okay, so clearly uh, we can see here that God is angry. 
And he's angry because his people are in rebellion against him in spite of the signs, in spite of the miracles, in spite of the proofs that God has shown them. They are rebellion. They are in rebellion against him. So what sort of signs and miracles has he done? Why is he so angry at this moment? Well, here are some examples of the signs. He miraculously delivered them from, from Egypt from 400 years being enslaved. Uh, there were plagues. There was the Red Sea parting. There was, there was making undrinkable water actually drinkable. There was the manna and the quail and the water from the rock. Um, the defeat of the enemies. Um, and then they, and they traveled to Sinai, where they see God in his might and his power with earthquakes and smoke. Um, and this is all covered in the book of Exodus, which we will be looking at in our next sermon series. And then from Sinai, they, they traveled to this place called, called Kadesh Barnea, which is kind of like a staging ground for entrance into Canaan. And God is with them through the whole way, through fire and cloud and miracles. But... The people fail spectacularly. And so in chapters 10 through 14 of Numbers, we see a list as long as your arm of them failing over and over again. Uh, you know, the people fail and then they complain. Moses fails and then, and then he complains and Miriam and Aaron fail. And then they send in these 12 spies to um, l- look around the land as kind of forward scouts. And 40 days later, they return, and many of us know the story, that there are 10 who bring a bad report and two who bring a positive report. And as a result of the report, Israel rebels and complains again. And then Caleb, one of the spies who brings this good report, says, we can take the land, people. We can do it. But the rest of the spies say, nah, it's hopeless. There's nothing we can do. And this bad attitude is infectious, just like bad attitudes always are. And, and, then the, and then the Israelites cry and weep and grumble and complain. And then Moses and Aaron fall face down in front of the whole nation while Joshua and Caleb try to encourage the crowd again with arousing, we can do it, people, we can do it. But the response of the Israelites is to try to kill these faithful servants of Yahweh with stones to shut them up. And it's at that moment that we read in Numbers chapter 14, verse 10, the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of the meeting to all the Israelites. Friends, this shows us that God has had enough. And in verse 12, God says to Moses, I will strike them down with a plague and I will destroy them. I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and stronger than they. Okay, he's saying to Moses, I'll start again with you. We're done with them. Now it's your turn. But then in verse 13, it says, Moses said to the Lord, which means that the conversation's not over yet. And then the passage carries on with Moses saying saying to God, saying to Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, no, that's not okay. You can't wipe them out. After which God changes his his position from judgment into forgiveness. And we'll look more at this story in a minute. But what we should know right now is that this is an incredible exchange. What we're seeing here is the power of prayer. You know, we see Yahweh, we see God saying he will wipe out the the Israelites because of their repeated rebellion. And he says that he will start again with his faithful servant Moses. And then Moses prays to God and God changes his plan. 
he changes his plan from destroying into forgiveness. And, and, and why? He says, as you ask, Moses, as you ask. He's doing this in response to Moses' asking. God, so Moses, Moses prays. And God relents. That much is clear, that Moses prays and God relents. But why? And, th- and this why is this mysterious middle of the pole where God's sovereignty and God's providence and Moses' prayer and our prayers meet. And so Numbers 14 actually gives us a fairly good idea of what's going on in Moses' head at that moment where, where God says that he will wipe out the Israelites. And I think that we could sum up Moses' headspace at that moment with the word confusion or maybe outrage even. You see, the God who says, I will destroy them, is the same God who said to Moses in Exodus 3 verse 7, he says, I have indeed seen the misery of my, of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and a spacious land. And so the God who says, I will destroy them, in Numbers 14 is the same God who says to Moses in Exodus 19 verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, if you, if you obey me and fully keep my commandment, then out of all of the nations, you will be my treasured possession, although the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And now, Moses is facing a God who says in Numbers chapter 14, how long will they refuse to believe me? In spite of all the signs I've performed among them, I will strike them down with a plague. And destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. And then Moses pleads for mercy, and God forgives. Now, of course, for us, this raises a bunch of theological questions. You know, God says that he, he will destroy. Moses prays, and as a result of Moses' prayer, God says that he will forgive. How do we interpret this, uh, this change of mind of the God who has no shadow of turning, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? How do we interpret this? Well, as Nathan and I were processing this earlier in the week, we, we came up with three options. Maybe there are more, and folks, I'm sure, who are much more learned than us um, have reasoned other things, but here are some that we, we came up with. Option one. Okay, so... Yeah, what we're asking is what happened here in the middle? What happened in this gray zone? So option one is that God changed his mind. And looking at the plain reading of the passage, it seems that he did. He said he would punish Moses and seeded. Then he was said, and then he said that he would pardon them. So did God change his mind? And does God change his mind in response to our prayers? This is a very important question for us. And if that's true, then how does that impact how we pray? How does that impact how we view God? 
A a pastor friend of mine, Mark Wilson, explains it like like this. He says, think of it like sitting down with a world-class chess master. So Mark Wilson said, yes, God did did change his mind, and and he explained it like this. Think of it like sitting down with a world-class chess master who says, I will beat you in 58 moves. You go first, and after you move, you're... Your piece, he says, now I will beat you in 22 moves. There are choices and there are options, even real choices of disobedience and evil, and God doesn't predetermine these outcomes. He lets them play out, but in the end, he wins. So option one is that God changed his mind. Option two is that he didn't really mean it meaning he was only pretending to want to wipe out the Israelites. But why would God pretend? Maybe God's, God's goal was to motivate Moses to grow a heart of compassion for the people that he was leading who were in rebellion. But the issue that we have with God just pretending is it seems to paint God as a liar or God as untrustworthy. And then option three is kind of a mixture of the of the first two, God foreknew in his perfect knowledge that he would get angry and that Moses would pray and that God would quote-unquote change his mind. But this raises as many questions as it answers. Like if God foreknew that he would change his mind, did he really change his mind? And so as I look at Numbers 14, if I'm honest, I don't know what the real answer is. Each explanation seems to raise its own questions. So I I'm not sure what to make of Numbers 14, but that's the point. Because, friends, there are times when we cannot see God clearly, when, he, when what he's doing seems at best to be clouded in mystery, and at worst we can wonder whether God even knows what he's really doing. And that's why Moses' response in Numbers 14 is so vital to us. Because what Moses does when faced with the mystery of the incomprehensibility of God, is he revisits what he clearly knows about God. He prays God's character. And so if we're confused, or if we're unsure about what, God's up to, what God is up to, when doubt threatens to creep in, we pray what we already know about God through his word. We pray God's character back to him. And that's how prayer becomes our action. This is how we navigate seasons of life that make no sense. We pray God's character. We we pray what we know about him. And our action in prayer, praying God's character, invites God's action into our lives. Like we heard last week in the story of Elijah, uh, or maybe Daniel, or, or in the story this week with Moses, where Moses changed God's mind. And so, friends, if you're in a season of doubt or uncertainty, don't allow yourself to get so mired down in the questions. It's, it's fine to doubt. It's fine to ask questions. We should. You know, we had, we had a whole sermon about that recently. But, but, but don't get so mired down in the questions that you stop praying. Instead, retreat to solid ground because, and revisit what you know about God and pray this. And so Moses in verse 13 and 14, when faced with God saying that he will wipe out all of the Israelites, he prays what he knows. So first he prays God's reputation, verse 13. Moses, verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, 
then the, the, then the Egyptians will, will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. And so what Moses is saying is he's boldly coming up to God, and he's saying that the Egyptians know that God is with them because God rescued the Israelites from them through, through his power and his might. And then he's saying that the Egyptians will go to the Canaanites, and, 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 and they will let them know about his reputation. And if God fails to bring the Israelites into the promised land, then God's reputation itself is at stake. Verse 14, they have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, Ha, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. You see what a bold prayer this is. How dare Moses say this to Almighty God? Well, he dares say it because it's true. And God wants us to hold him accountable to his promises. And so when faced with the mystery of God, when we cannot work out what's happening... When we're faced with things that we don't know about God, we pray what we do know about God. We pray into his reputation and we also pray into God's character. Verse 17 of Numbers 14. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you, you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty and punished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents of the third and, third and fourth generation in accordance with your great love. Forgive the sins of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Okay, so what's Moses saying here? Well, he's actually quoting God's self-disclosure that he gave on Mount Sinai when, when the law was given, when they received the Ten Commandments in Exodus 34 verse 6. Moses is quoting God's character back to him. This is Moses saying to God, this is who you told me you are. This is who you told me you are. You are slow to anger. You're abounding in love. You're forgiving sin and rebellion. And then in verse 20 of Numbers 14, after Moses said this to him, it says, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. As you asked. Which is incredible. God responds to us when we pray what he's revealed to us about himself back to him. Now, God's words in Exodus 34 verse, uh, and in Numbers 14 actually carry on. It says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And so we see this as the Numbers 14 passage carries on, that the children of Israel are sentenced to wandering the desert for 38 more years until a new generation under Joshua and Caleb's leadership can enter into the promised land. So that's where we see, you know, the punishment of the children to the third and fourth generation happening there. But, but, but this morning, 
what I want us to do is to hold on to this thought in our minds and our hearts, that prayer is our action. That, that, that the prayer which is given in faith can literally change the course of events as we hold on to the promises and the revelation of the Lord, as we pray the promises and the character and the reputation of God back to himself, things change. And so here's my offer to you this morning. I have six copies of this wonderful book. It's called God's Promises for Your Every Need. And it's like I don't know, 330 pages of just promise after promise after promise for all sorts of circumstances of, of life. And so if you want to start practicing praying God's promises to him, then send me an email or a text or a Facebook message. And the first six who write to me will receive a copy of this book. We need to practice this stuff, praying God's promises to him. And this is how we um, venture into the middle ground between God's sovereignty and our, our agency. Bet- between God's, God's, God's providence and will and power and our responsibility. We, we do it by praying God's character and God's reputation back to him. And so as we, as we wrap up this message this morning and this series focused on prayer, um, on keeping company with God through exchanging and remaining and seeking and waiting and honesty and lament and inviting God's action through our action of prayer, let me ask you this. What are the promises of God that you need to be holding on to and praying into right now? How has God revealed himself to you in the past that you need to be remembering and claiming and staking everything on? Last week we learned that our prayers become the marching orders of God's angel armies, right? And this morning we've learned that our prayers can influence God's actions himself. And friends, I, I say that and I'm nervous saying it. I, I, I'm worried about saying that because God is sovereign. He is almighty. He is all-knowing. He is all-wise. He is all-holy. He is all-just. He does not need me and he does not need you. And yet, and yet God invites us into that mysterious place between his sovereignty and our responsibility by praying God's character. And that really brings us full circle. Because weeks ago, as we wrapped up our earlier series on faith, I preached a short series on the cross. And I said that the cross is the linchpin that holds faith and prayer together. And the cross is the linchpin that holds heaven and earth together. That it's at the cross that we see God's sovereignty and our responsibility most perfectly shown. And so Jesus, who is God, the eternal receiver of prayers, became Jesus the man who prayed. And so just as the cross is the linchpin between faith and prayer, so Jesus is the middle ground between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. He is the God-man. 
He is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who represents the, the, the mystery of God to us as humans. And he is the image of humanity, right? He is the image of, of humanity and he represents us to the perfection and the holiness of God. And he prays for us, right? He is this middle ground. It says that Jesus Christ is interceding for us. He is the mystery of God made visible and he is the mundanity of humanity made perfect, made absolutely perfect. And so we pray, and so we pray through Jesus to the Father. And it's through Jesus that we keep company with God. It's through Jesus that we exchange our burdens for his yoke. It's through Jesus that we remain in the vine. It's through Jesus that we seek God in perseverance. It's through Jesus that we wait on God in patience. It's through Jesus that we're totally honest with God, holding nothing back. It's through Jesus that we lament and we grieve and we mourn. And it's through Jesus that we engage in the practice of prayer that invites the action of God. Why? Because even when we don't know what's going on in that space in the middle, in that mystery, we know that Jesus is the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. We know who Jesus is, and through Jesus we know who God is, and so we pray.